This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode five, The Rise of Brian Boru. last episode, we left behind the bold adventures of Scandinavians in North America and Greenland, and we headed back east across the treacherous North Atlantic. And we decided, on our way back to England as its Saxon rule is collapsing in the early 1000s, that we would stop off and establish an understanding of Ireland during this time period. In fact, Ireland will undergo a very different fundamental change than their neighbors across the Irish Sea we will arrive on the shores of an island that was about to explode. Its political structure was becoming more and more untenable, and we'll not only look at these events, but we'll also become more familiar with the Irish people, their land, their political and societal structures, and their culture. On today's episode, we essentially talk revolution. But probably not revolution in the way you may be thinking. We will lay the seeds that we will return to in the next episode, so try to keep an eye on the flickers of change, the flickers of things turning back on themselves. I hope you enjoy the show. Full Disclosure According to my genetic ancestry testing, I share 32.8% of my DNA between Britain and Ireland. And I'm kind of scattered, really. I have dense concentrations of ancestry in County Mayo, County Kerry, and Dublin in Ireland. As for my British ancestry, I'm largely from the Greater London area, as well as Tynan Ware, Merseyside, Yorkshire, Manchester, and Cumbria. Throw in a fairly dense pinch of Glasgow City, and it's pretty safe to assume where my ancestors immigrated to America from. You know, it's really fascinating to have that peek inside my past. If time travel were a thing, I'd say that this is one manifestation of it. In addition to my Irish and British ancestry, I claim about 17% Scandinavian genetics, which was, according to my studies of the Viking Age so far most likely due to the activity of Norwegian, Icelandic, Danish, and especially Norman influences on these islands during the three or four centuries of maximum movement by these so-called Vikings. You know, when I initially began reading about this period of history, 
I had a very one-dimensional perspective of Vikings in particular. In fact, I still assume they wore horned helmets, ran roughshod into battle, and, and more or less kept to the North Sea area, except for that intrepid few who traveled west to North America. And I never questioned the word Viking itself, assuming it was what they called themselves. And so as I, de- as, as I dive deeper into this group of various peoples of Scandinavia, I'm just becoming more and more fascinated by them. But specifically for today's episode here, we're leaving the North American continent, right? And, and as we approach the Irish shores, much like medieval Norse merchants would, we would see rocky shores and, and maybe cliffs in many places. Ireland, it's a land filled with as much mystery and magic as it is with the color green. And the people who hail from there have no shortage of words describing its beauty and its appeal. One person who remains a mystery to time once wrote the following. So proud of all of Ireland of history long gone, that inspired generations of men later on, your age is your greatness and testament still, as you stand Brunabuan on County Maith Hill. Your age is your greatness, it says. Ireland is indeed an ancient land, having weathered the ice, the ice age roughly 15,000 years ago. Its rolling hills, its rocky cliffs falling into the white-capped waves, crashing into them. See, these are the gifts left behind for the earliest people to inhabit. The Celts were among the earliest settlers, but these settlers traveled from deep inside the heart of the Eurasian continent for centuries or, or even millennia before setting sail from the mainland. They influenced just an almost innumerable number of, of, of cultures along the way. So the sun shines down in patches through the partly cloudy skies. At least that's the image we have. Skies ranging from the softest blues to the deepest grays. Down below, every shade of green is seen between sun and shadow. The shores, though rocky, also had natural harbors carved into it. It was a terribly dangerous island to make landfall, mostly, but there were spots one can land somewhat safely, which is what Norwegian and Icelandic Vikings, and I use the term Vikings deliberately here because at first that's, that's what these raiders of legends were. This is what they found. You know, on the west coast, inlets and harbors like the one in Donegal, Galway, and Limerick would become Viking strongholds. And on the east coast, places like Dublin, Wexford, Waterford, Cork. These would become key centers for Scandinavian trade in and out of the island beginning around 795 with the first recorded Viking raid on the Emerald Isle. And unlike Iceland, England, northern France, and other places like Kiev and Eastern Europe, Vikings in Ireland, as they quickly realized in the first century or so of the official Viking Age, couldn't quite penetrate the innards of this land. Largely, central Ireland, despite what its dangerous rocky shoreline would suggest, inside of Ireland is a mix of hills and pastures, perfect for maintaining flocks and herd of animals year-round. Temperatures were relatively calm, though the Irish people were certainly used to the typical North Atlantic rough winters. All in all, Ireland was and is a pretty great land to inhabit. Fertile grasslands allowed sheep and cattle grazing to flourish, and most Irish families were subsistence farmers, 
keeping large-scale agricultural trade to somewhat of a minimum. Ireland itself is just slightly larger than my home state of Indiana, here in the American Midwest, an island in and of itself in various ways when compared to the states around it. There's a bit of pride reflected in a people who feel different than those nearby. And this pride can dig in, and this pride can root itself deep into the soil that supports it. It's been said of the Irish that they bring a bit of heaven here to earth. But as beautiful as this island may be, and the the culture that developed from this beauty, the Irish people themselves were also a fiercely territorial bunch back in the medieval period. The Irish loved, well, Ireland. The Ireland of the mid to late 900s teemed with hundreds of kingdoms, ranging in size and influence, and even thousands more clans and families scattered from rocky coast to rocky coast. There was one clan who seemed to hold the most influence, though. This family, called the Unil, were not only longtime high kings of Ireland, but also leaders of kingdoms who fed into the power structure of the island. See, at the at the so-called top of the Irish political system was a high king. This was a king who ruled over a specific kingdom within Ireland, but due to either economic or, or military dominance, this king would gain the loyalty of other kings who would become more and more or less vassals of the high king, but, but not in the same way we'll use the word vassal throughout this podcast. So I want to be careful calling these other kings vassals. When the high king needed soldiers, for instance, these kings would provide them, and these kings would also provide a tribute to the high king each year in exchange exchange for some level of protection. Remember, Ireland had thousands of clans of individuals who, who constantly sought territory and resources. These lower kings, so to speak, also had smaller clans and towns who had the same deal with they, that they had with the high king. Clans and towns would provide soldiers and tributes in exchange for that certain level of protection. And below that, clans and towns had individual families who shared the same responsibilities. It was, you know, a simple system, but as we'll see, the complexities were certainly there, especially when lines of successions were interrupted or or when another king rose to rival a king or gasp, you know, the high king. Around the mid-900s, Ireland was ruled over by, as I said, the Unil, specifically a man named Mael Sheshnell MacDonald. Mael Sheshnell came from a long line of Irish high kings, but it would be his rule which would see its most dangerous interruption. Other kingdoms ruled over by the ancient Unil were the Tara, Mide, Uisnec, Eilek, Tyrone, Tyrknell, and Brega. And I apologize for right now that I may or may not have pronounced those properly. They traced their lineage back to Nial, better known to history as Nial Noigalak, or Nial of the Nine Hostages, who lived around the late 4th century and into the early 5th century. When I received my genetic testing initially, I was informed that due to the placement of my DNA today, that there was a high probability that I descended from this very man, Nial, However, more recent studies have, been, have begun to disprove this theory, though, though these studies readily admit Nial was most likely a part of a much older haplotype. Despite this, it's safe to assume that Nial might have been the Irish equivalent to Genghis Khan, which is kind of interesting. 
The O'Neill oversaw a very interesting group of people, the typical Irishman or Irishwoman. These people were stylish, and they were not afraid of either hard work or a fight. They lived in a simpler time, but in politics, economics, and faith, it was anything but simple, as we're seeing. And can I just interrupt for a moment to explain something important before we continue? Irish history can be chunked out throughout its history in ages or eras, no doubt. But for our purposes here, I'd like to point out one such historical delineation. The terms pre-Norman and post-Norman. See, these are important for Irish history, not to mention other places around Europe during the medieval period. To keep it kind of simple, Ireland's Viking Age lasted in large part between 795 and about 1014. This I will call pre-Norman Ireland. As we've established on the podcast already, Normans were simply Northmen or Norsemen. These Norsemen settled in northern France, which we'll take a closer look at very soon, but they haven't interacted much with Ireland directly yet. They will return in a couple centuries, so hang on, hang on tight for that one. We will get to post-Norman Ireland in time. Okay, so in pre-Norman Ireland, also called Gaelic Ireland, around the mid-900s was a patriarchal society, as were other Gaelic societies such as Scotland and the Isle of Man. Pater in Latin means father, so the Gaelic Irish passed on titles and territories from father to son mainly. This patrilineal Gaelic system was called tanistry, and the tanist is basically the son or or the nephew or the grandson, who, upon the death of the patriarch of the clan or kingdom, will inherit the estate. But there's a catch. And unlike neighbors on the big island next door, the Irish never allowed a female to be a tanist. But tanistry also isn't quite what you might be thinking it is. Here's the catch. When it comes to who exactly will succeed the deceased leader, this person was elected. Yeah. Which, in contrast to another form of tanistry called blood tanistry, that folks like the ancient Turks and Mongols used for succession, well, let's just say they replaced the voting part with a more Darwinian approach. This type of tanistry, the electing type, this was in fact how the High King of Ireland at the close of the 900s earned his title. Warfare also was very common throughout pre-Norman Ireland. I saw one source say that there might have been upwards of 50,000 individual clans scattered around the island during High King Maelsheshnel's time, and around 250 lower kingdoms. As for culture, the Gaelic or pre-Norman Irish shared a common language around the mid-900s that was shifting from Old Irish to Middle Irish due to the Norwegian and Icelandic influences, but its biggest and longest-lasting linguistic evolution will take place during the, that delineation period I mentioned before, between pre-Norman and post-Norman Ireland. When the Normans invaded somewhere, they brought with them the old ways of the Norse, along with a couple hundred years of European cosmopolitan integration with them, as it did in Sicily and Byzantium and southern Italy and Antioch, the Norman influence fundamentally changed the course of the invaded people's cultures, languages, music, dress, and, I mean, really anything. 
But again, as the Irish crept toward the year 1000, they spoke Old Irish, which was slowly morphing into that Middle Irish. As for clothing, there was this misconception about the Irish wearing kilts, but that's not really true. They wore something called the lena, which was just a tight-fitting tunic that stretched from the shoulders to either the knee or the ankle, depending on your status in society. These were made of wool and linen, but due to Viking influence on the island during the 8 and 900s, silk actually began to show up in the very upper classes. A person put it on like they would a shirt today or, you know, over the head, but they would wrap a belt around the waist. I saw one source say that, that men who worked in the fields or in dangerously hot places like forges or smith shops or something like that, they, they would stretch or rip their collars large enough to squeeze their shoulders through so that the top hung around their waist just to keep them cool. They also wore a vest-like garment made of wool called a yonar. A brat was that cool piece of linen that draped over one shoulder and clasped to the lene. It is said that not only did it serve as a symbol of your class and wealth, but it, it could also be decorated or, or used as a makeshift umbrella. You just kind of wrap it over your head if it starts to rain. And yes, pants were a part of the ensemble too, but as you can imagine, they were mainly worn by men. And don't forget those leather boots. They, they had leather boots. And to pin this whole thing together, a brooch. Depending on your wealth, it could be either gold or silver or, or simply iron and bronze. These brooches are some of the coolest archaeological finds we come across. Because each one, each brooch is intricately designed and cut to match the person wearing it. And finally, the Gaelic-Irish were largely animists, though thanks in large part to St. Brendan the Navigator and St. Patrick, Christianization had crept its way into the clans across the island, and by the late 900s, it's safe to say Ireland was more or less a, a Christian land, though some of their previous religious ways hadn't quite been shaken off completely. Animists are, are people who believe all things found in nature have a spirit or a soul. They are inherently sp spiritual in a way that Christianity doesn't quite allow for, and that's a hard line of thinking to break, one can imagine. To ask a person who appreciates, say, a tree as a spiritual thing in the same way he or she is a spiritual thing, only to wake up the next day and find that you're no longer connected to that tree in that same way, well, that's to say you're a part of a greater design in a way that deliberately separates you from that tree, both created in and of nature. Well, I mean, that made it difficult for Gaelic-Irish peoples to move in the direction of Rome, one could say. But move in the direction of Rome they did. And due to how they buried their dead, the inclusion of tools and pets and food and valuables, when compared to other similar burial practices around the world, like the Vikings, for instance, one can assume they were also proponents of not only an afterlife, but maybe even resurrection? But that's not conclusive. They had two holiday festivals that celebrated the harvest, really. I'm going to try to pronounce these properly, so excuse me if I completely butcher it. Uh, Lugnasad and Samain, or Sawain, I've heard it. Which, uh, Samain was assimilated into our modern Halloween upon Christianization. The other two, Inbolk and Beltane, were associated with the spring. 
When Christian monks entered the island, and this was the exact same story just about everywhere Christianity went during the Middle Ages, it brought with a, it brought with it a meticulous writing and recording tradition. Writing in Latin, monks began to write histories and lineages and correspondences and stories, wrote all of it down. After a while, the Irish themselves wrote in their own language these things and included business matters and laws as well. So by the 900s, Ireland was a fairly literate society, maybe not all the way down to the lower classes, but there was certainly a, a culture of, uh, of record-keeping beginning to take, take a hold. A few more quick notes about Gaelic Ireland before moving on. Money wasn't quite popular yet, which left bartering at markets as the main vehicle of trade. Trade was common since Roman times between Ireland and Britain and, and mainland Europe, even being recorded by the Roman Tacitus. Most battles and skirmishes were fought over livestock or grazing lands and were executed swiftly thanks to the horse, but as the 900s crept on, larger and larger armies began to amass for large-scale destruction and conquest, and not, as we'll see, solely because of the foreign Viking intruders either. In these battles, the typical Irish soldier wore only what I mentioned earlier, as armor was pretty expensive, but most Irish men and boys were fairly well-trained with a spear, a short sword, and, and certainly the horse. The image that I'd like to have in mind as we actually start the history of this, the image that I would, ha I would like to have in mind is, is that of an old man at prayer. And this image will carry on to the next episode as well. So picture it, the year is 1014, which for our Irish listeners, from what I've heard and read, instantly strikes as a you know, pretty well-known year in Irish history. This man at prayer, one can quickly tell if one were to walk into the tent and see the old man's back, was a man who lived a thousand lives. He's in his mid-80s. I imagine a broad-shouldered, hunched, frail man who is one minor insult away from clenching his fists, fists like two oaken clubs, and clobbering the insolence thrown in his direction. I imagine him in this moment on his knees, head bowed, hands clasped under his bristly white chin. Inside the tent, not a sound was made. However, outside, beyond the tree line in the near distance, roared the sounds of battle, of men's curses, the tings of metal on metal, and shouts of agony. This 80-year-old man, he led this army here, into battle, just 20 or so miles north of Dublin. These were old foes, old, once-defeated foes, making another attempt at erasing the work this old man has done throughout the island during the last three decades. Some Irish like him, and some Viking. Had this been a united nation, Ireland would have been experiencing a brutal civil war, but... But that's not one of this man's accomplishments, however. He did not implement a single national authority, therefore, this was no civil war. This was merely a, another grab for power, much like his own successful grabs for power when he was a younger man. As he knelt in prayer, I find it hard to deny that he wouldn't have at least entertained glimpses of his long years. He had his own kingdom for about 50 years at this point, 
but he had wrested the crown of high king from the ancient clan of the Uenil a mere 14 years before. What images and conversations might he have thought about in that quiet time of prayer as the battle raged outside his tent there, north of Dublin, in the year 1014? Brian was his name, of the Uibriun Siola clan. He was born to King Senetig MacLorcan, who ruled over the Dalgosh and Thomond kingdoms. Brian was most likely born in Thomond, in present-day County Clare. At the time, Dalgosh and Thomond were obligated to the King of Munster. His father, Senetag MacLorcan, died in 951, and his son, and Brian's brother, Mathgamain, took the reins as king of both the Dalgosh and Thoman kingdoms without much fuss at all. By this time, Brian had already been formally trained in reading and writing Latin, and had taken an interest even in Irish history. His father had fallen to the Vikings of Limerick, and Brian would never forget this fact. At the time, Ireland was ruled over by Mael Sheshnell MacDomnall, High King of Ireland, as mentioned. Under Mael Sheshnell were several major kingdoms, or what were called over-kingdoms, who paid the High King tribute, which were from north to south, Mael Sheshnell's northern Uinil, Ergiala, Uled, Brefni, Konakta, the southern Uinil, Leinster, Osredge, and Brian's home of Munster. And there were the five major Viking strongholds on the island as well, though their direct influence would remain very close to the coasts. The kingdom of Munster would surround Limerick, Cork, and Waterford, while Leinster surrounded Wexford and more or less shared the border of Dublin with the kingdom of the southern Uinil, depending on which map you looked at. In time, Ireland would erupt once again this time beginning as a mere spark in that very large southern kingdom of Munster in the year 967. This year would be Brian's first taste of combat, when his brother Mathgamain led his Dalgash army against the Limerick Vikings at the Battle of Sukhoi. The Viking leader Ivar would suffer horrible casualties in this battle, and he would be kicked out of Ireland until two years later when he returned and took back Limerick. Mathgamain would respond to Ivar later, for at the moment, 970, he found himself in the process of elevating the prominence of the Dalgash, as no other Uibrion had done before. Mathgamain would relieve the king of Munster, Mael Muad, from his title and his capital located in Cashel. But before he could consolidate his power, Mael Muad killed Mathgamain. Brian was now king, instantly, of the Dalgash and Thomond, against all odds, as it is said that Brian was the youngest of twelve sons. And having made the moves he did in the previous few years, Mathgamain had put Brian immediately on his heels. Ivar had retaken Limerick, and Mael Muad had retaken Cashel and the Kingdom of Munster. Brian had to make a point, and it had to be quick, and it had to be merciless as his potential enemies were metaphorically storming his gates. First on the list, deal with Ivar and Limerick. In 972, after the initial dust had settled, Brian marched toward the port city at the mouth of the River Shannon and held nothing back. Ivar would escape and set up camp 
on Scattery Island near Limerick, still too close for Brian's comfort. So without warning, in 977, Brian sailed to Scattery Island, surprised Ivar and his Vikings, and he slaughtered the lot where they stood. There was now no question as to, as to who the true ruler of Limerick was anymore. Having amassed a growing army of supporters, Brian led a contingent of Cashel, to Cashel, excuse me, and achieved the revenge on his brother's assassin that he craved, thus taking the entire overkingdom of Munster, arguably one of the most important on the whole island, short of, say, Leinster and northern Uinil. Brian was now king of not only Dalgash and Tholmond, but also king of Munster, and received all the support and wealth that came with that position. And he wasted no time wrenching Cork and Waterford from Viking control as well. It's worth it to stop here a moment and consider that Brian's quest for power and influence and land was not solely as a means to kick out the Scandinavians, though controlling their established harbors and ports and gaining their sea prowess and fleets was certainly an added bonus. In fact, Brian would allow the male and female Norse inhabitants of Limerick, Cork, Waterford, and soon Wexford and Dublin to remain as long as they answered when he called upon them for naval and military support. No, Brian was merely continuing what Irish kings and warlords and chieftains had done for centuries, really, though no one but the O'Neill clan had ever held the title of High King. After gaining authority over Connacht and Leinster, now effectively half of the entire island was under Brian's influence. Brian had inched far too close to Dublin for High King Mael Sheshnell's liking. Mael Sheshnell had earned overlordship of Viking Dublin years earlier, but in 996, when Leinster's king, Donkud MacDomnall, bent his knee to Brian, Mael Sheshnell himself, a very powerful ruler, realized that the best thing to do, maybe even as a way to take the wind out of Brian's sails for a few years, was just to make peace. That same year, 996, Mael Sheshnells formally recognized Brian's rule over Munster, Meath, Connacht, Leinster, and Osraig. In that same year, Duncan's successor, Mael Morda, and Dublin's ruler, the Viking Citric Silkbeard, rose up in rebellion against Brian, which would be a long road to an embarrassing defeat at the hands of Brian in 999, about the time, as we discussed in a previous podcast, our old friend Olaf Tryggvason, now king of Norway, was attempting to Christianize Greenland through the one and only Leif Erikson. So I hope you enjoyed the beginning of Brian's story today. Thank you all for downloading and listening. I'm determined to grow this show, so I ask that you share this show with those you know. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app or site like Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Spotify Breaker, and of course, Anchor, among others. And we're also on Facebook. Search for Fortune's Wheel Podcast. We are on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. And even on Instagram, at Fortune underscore Wheel underscore Podcast. You can also email the show at Fortune's Wheel Podcast at gmail.com, all lowercase. I encourage questions, book recommendations, differing perspectives, and even suggestions for topics to be covered. But again, most importantly, thank you for listening. 
Next week, we will wrap up this tale of Ireland's first non-Uniel High King. To think that Brian's possible downfall wasn't at the forefront of his mind is, is also simply to misunderstand the ancient Irish mindset. As the famous Irish-American actor Jack Nicholson once said, Hey, I'm Irish. I think about death all the time. Brian had still a lifetime to live, however, and we'll pick up the story with Male Morda and Citric Silkbeard's first rebellion against him. I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>